This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. The end of the public health emergency and what it means for patients, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Starting next week, we're launching a special series on the healthcare workforce, and our news team will be taking a short break from the podcast. But there were a few topics the team wanted to talk about, so I handed over the podcast to them for today. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. All right, what's up, everyone? Uh, apologies, first of all, for my voice. I'm dealing with a bit of a cold. Today, we're talking about the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency and the Medicaid unwinding, which has the potential to disrupt coverage for millions. Of course, uh, during the COVID-19 PHE, states have gotten enhanced federal funding in exchange for maintaining Medicaid enrollment and not disenrolling anyone who doesn't meet standard criteria. That provision ended April 1st, and over the next year, states will be evaluating eligibility criteria and paring down their roles. Sean, from your reading of the situation, what are we in store for over the next year? The enhanced federal funding, you know, deduction started on April 1st, like you said, Nick, and that was five percentage points. And then 2.5 percentage points will be taken on July 1st, and then 1.5 percentage points on October 1st, and then the final sunset on January 1st, 2024. So we're going to see states start looking at those redeterminations as of April 1st, and then redetermine eligibility for patients. And if necessary, you know, some disenrollment will happen. And, and I know you touched on this, but, you know, enrollment in Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, I think reached over um, 90 million during the pandemic. So there are estimates suggesting that about 15 million of those lives will lose coverage during that redetermination process. So that is very alarming to hospitals, as well as, you know, patients who have been taking advantage of that health care provided under the Medicaid umbrella. With state-based programs, it's hard to come up with a precise estimate of the number of people who will lose coverage nationwide. You're dealing with 50 different programs. Last August, federal projections did indeed put the share at 9.5% in terms of who would become ineligible and need to transition to other coverage, plus another 7.9% that would lose coverage based on administrative churn, meaning they're still eligible, but something gets in the way of, of re-enrolling. For example, maybe they've moved since the pandemic started, so efforts to reach them and alert them that they have to re-enroll are unsuccessful. And then hypothetically, they could show up in the emergency room at some point thinking their Medicaid insurance will cover them only to be told, no, that's not the case. Right, Nick. I've been talking to a lot of hospitals that are really partnering 
a lot with their states and their local counties to to really do outreach to these patients because many of those folks under Medicaid, like you were saying, the county and the state have not been in contact with them for sometimes two to three years during the pandemic, but yet the hospitals have maintained treating these patients and helping them with their healthcare needs so they might have better contact information. So hospitals are really ramping up their outreach to those patients as well to try to get them back in for reevaluations, redeterminations. Yeah, which is a very important thing to do. Just to add an, an analysis commissioned by AHIP, the health insurance trade group, put the number who will end up uninsured once all the dust settles at 3.8 million, which is still a big number. And in terms of timing, just to follow up on something you said, Sean, it, it seems likely that the next few months could see a lot of people get disenrolled. And the biggest decrease will be from 5 percentage points to 2.5 starting July 1st, down to 1.5 in October, and then zero after that. So the financial incentive for covering everybody, including those who don't meet the usual eligibility criteria, is kind of dissipating. And that especially will be the case going into July. Sean, you mentioned the feedback you've gotten from HFMA members on this whole situation and some steps that you'd encourage providers to take at this point. Anything else to add there in terms of what they should be doing to try to uh, mitigate this whole situation? You're hitting on the important points there and, and working with your local counties and your state Medicaid teams on getting that revalidation and that outreach out to your patients is definitely key. But also knowing that some of this will be a little tiny bit suppressed in those states that have done Medicaid expansion. You'll see a little bit gentler reevaluations and, and disenrollment from Medicaid, but it's still going to be pretty abrupt. What I think hospitals are going to start seeing, though, pretty quickly is that movement from Medicaid to most likely the marketplace advantage plans from marketplace and keeping in mind that most of these folks are going to churn off of Medicaid if they go into marketplace and go on to bronze plans. And that out-of-pocket amount can be up to $9,100 annually for those folks as an individual or $18,200 for a family can be that much. So at that point, they're pretty much self-pay patients unless something catastrophic happens. So keeping that in mind as you schedule patients, maybe taking a lens that they truly kind of are self-pay and treating those patients, making sure they're aware of the cost of care and helping them out as much as possible, which I know our members do. Yeah, great points. Um, thanks for that, including about the distinction between Medicaid expansion and non-expansion states. Incidentally, North Carolina just became the 40th state to expand their Medicaid program, but that won't go into effect while this unwinding is, is happening. So essentially 11 states are the ones that really are going to be facing some restrictions in terms of Medicaid enrollment going forward. Obviously, providers can only do so much. The suggestions you just offered are, are definitely ones to uh, put into place. But much of the burden is on state Medicaid programs. They've known this was going to be coming, although the exact timing wasn't known until the FY23 omnibus spending bill was passed late last year because that bill included these provisions spelling out you know, the, the Medicaid unwinding. But now they have a year to hopefully implement a relatively smooth process as the enhanced federal funding gets phased out. And ideally, they'll be able to help everyone minimize the potential for chaos. So that's one aspect of the end of the public health emergency, which is taking place May 11th. There's many other things for healthcare stakeholders to be watching and to be keeping in mind over the next month and a half or so. Sean, what are some things on your radar that merit attention as the PHE finally comes to an end after more than three years? 
Yeah, well, for May 11th, we're looking at pretty significant cuts to reimbursement. So the Medicare 20% add-on payment for patients diagnosed with COVID-19 to offset the cost of that complex care, that goes away May 11th. So that is a really big hit to hospitals, especially those hospitals that are still treating an influx of COVID-19 patients. So that's a big one. Another one for Medicare beneficiaries and really everyone is the patient cost sharing on therapeutic access and COVID-19 vaccinations. All that parity and all that bump goes away on December 31st, 2023. So the cost of care will go up for patients as well, most likely on vaccinations and therapeutic access. And then health plans requirements to reimburse out-of-network providers for COVID-19 vaccines and testing also goes away May 11th. So those are some big jumps. Then we have another wave rolling out and ending on um, December 31st of 2023, you know, enhanced federal funding to state Medicaid programs, as we just talked, completely goes away. Um, reimbursement for certain services, cardiac intensive care and pulmonary rehabilitation services provided through telehealth, that all goes away under the physician fee schedule. And one of my biggest concerns here is the parity for services performed via telehealth that typically would have been done in person. So that parity between payment from telehealth services to in-person services goes away. So hospitals that are really struggling and providers really struggling to really make ends meet on those telehealth payments are going to take a haircut again on telehealth services at the end of 2023. So now's the time to really focus on um, streamlining those telehealth services and how you roll those out to patients over this next year to make sure you're you're in line with that haircut you're going to take on telehealth reimbursement. So those are just a few of the things that are coming up this year. I mean, we do have other things rolling out there a little bit later, but I think those are top of mind for me. Obviously, telehealth to some extent got decoupled from the public health emergency in the same bill that sort of laid out the timeline for the Medicaid unwinding. Congress established that some telehealth provisions would carry on through the end of 2024, including removing the restrictions on geographic specifications for where telehealth can be provided in terms of being across state lines and scenarios in which patients are allowed to receive telehealth. But the payment provisions that you just mentioned, Sean, are going to be a significant change coming up at the end of this year. Also, there's another waiver that got continued through 2024 is the acute care hospital at home waiver that allows you know hospital level inpatient care to be provided in patients' homes. Yeah, that's correct, Nick. That will continue via Congress. They extended that through the December 31st of 2024. And I think um, we are looking to see that extended on. I mean, the, the success of that program has been very well received with quality and patient satisfaction and physician satisfaction and outcomes. So I, we do expect that to somehow get cleaned up there and get extended past that December 31st, 2024 timeline, but definitely something to keep in mind and stay focused on over the next years. Without question. So there's just a ton of stuff to try to stay on top of in that period of time where, where these provisions that have helped a lot of people during a public health emergency are being phased out. That's already underway. So we at HFMA will definitely be keeping on top of all of this for you. One other thing before we go, Sean, you had a blog post recently about price transparency. 
and it pertained to a report that came out in February, I believe, on compliance or lack thereof by hospitals with the price transparency requirements that have been in place for more than two years now. Can you just give everybody a sense of uh, what the point you were trying to make in that post and, and what some of the relevant recent happenings are with price transparency? You know, I think everyone's probably read the the price transparency report that came out from CMS on February 14th through their health affairs blog, showing that 70% of hospitals are now pretty much in compliance with the federal price transparency guidelines and provisions and regulations. But then shortly thereafter, the patientsrightsadvocate.org group, the PR, I call them PRA, came out with their analysis showing that only 24.5% of hospitals were compliant with the federal price transparency regulations, which was a significant conflicting analysis from CMSs. And when I dove into those areas that they say um, hospitals are lacking compliance with, I found that their compliance measures tend to be more so on their kind of wish list of what they wish hospitals were doing rather than actually what's required in regulations. And sometimes they even conflicted with CMS's guidance on things like payer-specific negotiated charges, saying that hospitals were not posting those. That They basically focused on if a hospital negotiates rates and has contracted rates, for one plan under a payer, let's say um, Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield or Anthem, that they would have um, negotiator rates with all of those plans under that payer, which is not the case. So they were saying that hospitals were not compliant because they had not posted contracted rates with all plans under that payer umbrella, which is not the case because that's not how the contracts are negotiated all the time. Um, they are plan very plan specific. Another clear difference was that the patient advocacy group, patient rights advocate, came out and said that hospitals were non-compliant in using NA on their machine-readable files. And NA is actually guidance that was put out there by CMS in their August guidance saying that if a hospital does not offer a service, to make sure that patients understand that they don't offer it and they just didn't skip it to place in that field on a machine-readable file. And PRA decided to ding hospitals for that, even though it was clear that it was in the CMS guidance and was the way that CMS wanted that reported. So just a lot of um, variance in the way the regulation reads as the way the PRA did their analysis that, that really impacted that much lower score um, on hospital compliance. So I do think we're heading in the right direction. I know hospitals are very committed in getting that transparency information accurate and most meaningful to patients out there. And it's just interesting to see, you know, the uptick in compliance and passion to really get this out to a patient-centered focus as soon as possible by the hospital. So I applaud them for doing that. Excellent stuff. Thanks for that, Sean. It's the piece is definitely a worthwhile read for anyone who's interested in in price transparency, as is the CMS piece you referred to in, in health affairs. It lays out an argument for possible stepped-up enforcement of price transparency provisions, even though, as you just explained, compliance seems to be quite a bit higher than some of the headlines may suggest. All right, well, that'll do it for this extended segment of Beyond the News. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk soon. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. 
Reporting for the Beyond the News segment is by Nick Hutt and Sean Stack. Additional reporting is by the HFMA editorial staff. Audio editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is HFMA's chief content executive. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Stay tuned next week for the start of a special series on the healthcare workforce. You can hear those episodes and all of our episodes at hfma.org. He has plain pants that he puts on. <laughs> <laughs>